0: Hello and welcome to Become an Educator, the podcast that aims to explore the secrets to great teaching in our classrooms. I'm Darren Leslie, and each week I discuss things that will hopefully make an impact in your school, with guests from classroom teachers to head teachers and everyone in between and beyond in the education sector. Hello and welcome to Becoming Educated. This week, I am joined by the brilliant Doug Lamov. Doug is the Managing Director of Uncommon Schools and leads its Teach Like a Champion team, designing and implementing teacher training based on the study of high-performing teachers. He is the author of Teach Like a Champion 3.0 and The Coach's Guide to Teaching. He's also the co-author of Teaching in the Online Classroom, Read and Reconsidered, and Practice Perfect. I was super excited to speak with Doug, and I can't wait to share this with you. Because this week, I zone in on Chapter 1 of Teach Like a Champion 3.0, which is titled Five Themes, Mental Models and Purposeful Execution. And this is where Doug tries to share with us why it's important that teachers have a strong mental model of how students learn. And Doug shares five principles which we explore in depth in the episode. Principle one is understanding human cognitive structure means building long-term memory and managing working memory. Principle two is that habits accelerate learning. Principle three is what students attend to is what they will learn about. Principle four, motivation is social. And principle five, teaching well is relationship building. I absolutely loved exploring these principles with Doug and I can't wait to share it with you. So let's dive right into my episode with Doug LaMauve. Doug Lamov, thank you so much for coming on to Becoming Educated this evening. How are you?
1: I'm doing great, and uh, thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to it.
0: No, it's, it's an absolute pleasure. I've, I'm a huge fan of your work, and, and it's really helped me helped me a lot in my own, my own career. So I'm looking forward to digging into a little bit of your latest Teach Like a Champion book, Teach Like a Champion 3.0. But before we do that, could you please provide the listeners with a brief synopsis of your career to date, please?
1: Uh, sure. I will try to emphasize the brief part. Uh, let's see, as a teacher for five years, five or six years, depending on how you measure it, um, I dropped out of a PhD program. So if anyone wants to talk about the um, journals of the sailors of uh, James Cook's voyages, I got you covered there. Um, I was a principal of a school, uh, a charter school here in the US. Uh, worked briefly for the authorizer of charter schools, overseeing uh, many of the schools that were started here in the uh, late 1990s and early aughts. Uh, started an organization called Uncommon Schools, uh, which now has 50 uh, some odd schools in uh, in high need communities around the US. Um, I was a managing director, so I oversaw a bunch of this, uh, you know, sort of led and a couple of the schools in the network. And then uh, in the course of doing that, ended up um, studying teachers who made the greatest difference uh, and ended up, you know, writing the book teach like a champion. And as that sort of got more traction and visibility, I ended up sort of switching from running schools to focusing on teacher training and teacher development. And and, uh, that's what I do now.
0: Right, thank you, and obviously it's led to the to the books, the this st- kind of the study of teachers and so on. Um, what I'd like to do today, if I may, uh, Doug, is I would like to explore Chapter One of okay. The Champion Three Point. It'll be quite specific because yeah. it really, really fascinated me that chapter, and it really kind of for me brought home a few ideas that we've been swirling around my head, and really made a lot of sense. And as I explored the rest of the book, I you could I could see those themes in action through the Keystone videos and so on. So that, that chapter is called Five Themes, Mental Models and Purposeful Execution. So can I start by asking you what you mean by a mental model and why do you think it's important that teachers develop strong mental models for their teaching?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I guess to me, a mental model is a really clear conception of what it looks like when it works well, what it's supposed to look like. Um maybe we'll talk about this a little bit. I have a book about out about coaching. My second love is uh is football, uh, your version of football, not our version of football. Uh and you know, like one of the the things I just noticed that a great coach like Pep Guardiola does to help players make coordinated, high-quality decisions under pressure in a challenging situation is he spends a lot of time having them understand. The game model, how do we want to play? What do we look like when we're building out of the back? And so when, and we do that over and over again. And so that when we face challenges, we know what it's supposed to look like and it clicks when it's going well and it clangs <laughs> when it's not going well. And so then we're like, okay, something, something's not right here or yes, this is what it's supposed to look like. And so a mental model to me is, is just a sort of, um, well, hopefully eventually it's an intuitive conception of what, what it's supposed to look like. And it works well, I think it starts as a more you know, as a less intuitive and more sort of intentional working memory based conception of what what it looks like. But I'm just say that teachers are full of, you know, they have many mental models. Uh, I think I used the example in the book of you have a mental model as a teacher of, of classroom noise and what it's supposed to look like. And so you can stand with your back to the classroom and because you have a, a sense of what it's supposed to sound like behind you, you know the difference between good noise, which is like everyone's working and everything's everything's happening like it's supposed to, or hmm, a little bit fishy noise that like something is off and that causes you to turn around. And so the idea behind mental models, and and by the way, the mental model that I tried to present in chapter one is a mental model of learning, which is like, what do we know about students and how they learn and what causes them to learn effectively? Because obviously we want to ground our teaching decisions in the goal of learning. And so this mental model of learning, hopefully, The purpose is for teachers to be able to make decisions about which tools to use when and how and why, um, you know, it's simple to say that only a fool holds a hammer and thinks that everything's a nail, but there's actually a lot of really challenging decision-making to a set of tools, like, like teach like a champion, like deciding which one to use when and why and how those decisions are, are, are challenging. And I would like to make sure that, um, That the end that the means doesn't become the end right the purpose of the techniques is to foster student achievement. So I just felt like adding this chapter that describes. um, What we're trying to accomplish from a learning perspective, I just thought would help teachers to make
0: optimal execution decisions in the classroom. Certainly, yeah. probably. Can I think into my own um, my own experience <laughs> as a student? I can always remember the teachers that had eyes in the back of their head, and that'll be their, <laughs> their, their own mental models. Just a little bit of diversion. I'm quite fascinated by the, the your coaches guided teaching. I'm a former football coach for Hammersmith Football Club in my past, so it's also oh, a yeah. I've heard you mention in, in in other interviews that there's some similarities that you've found between. Coaching on outside the classroom, and then what happens when we're teaching inside the classroom? Can you speak briefly to that idea? Yeah, I mean, I think there are so many similarities, but maybe uh, one of
1: the things I was most struck by is how critical perception, especially visual perception, is to coaching athletes. that um, And I think this is particularly the case because athletes have to make decisions so quickly that there's, you know, a cognitive scientist would talk about the perception action linkage, which is Um, you can't make the right decisions unless you're looking at the right things. And, you know, there's a lot of data on the fact that, uh, you know, one thing that correlates really strongly to success for midfielders is their scanning, right? How often do they scan? And and implicitly, what do they scan for? Right? You could scan a lot and not look at the right things. But if if you're able to scan frequently and lock in on the signal and not the noise that tells you very quickly what the right cues are (laughs) about what your action should be, then you decide, more effectively. And, you know, as I first started to write about this, I, you know, I tried to sort of keep my two, la- the two parts of my life, my life separate and not really think about this in the classroom, but over and over again, it just came back to me at first, like for instructional leaders, you know, so much of like, of helping to develop people is, um, is, is looking at the right things and perceiving uh, what's happening in the cl- classroom. And for teachers, teachers who struggle, you know, there's a lot of data on um, what a lot of people call the quiet eye, which is this idea that experts look at less and process more efficiently the visual field, than novices. That novices tend to sort of look around nervously, scanning the room, scanning costs. Ha- scanning has a lot of costs in terms of working memory, trying to lock in on, use- on important stimulus, whereas an expert sort of knows where to look and their eyes naturally rest in the place where the important signals are. And I think you could probably do a lot with like, you know, a master teacher calmly stands in front of the room and glances at a student and uh, glances at the room and knows, you know, where and when student, the expressions on students' faces will be revealing. And what about their body language is revealing about their level of motivation and interest and engagement. And how do I, you know, and even just like looking for pencils moving and things like that. And maybe a rookie teacher who's still cutting their teeth uh, doesn't quite know the things to look for right away. And so this idea of just uh, visual, cues and guiding people's eyes to looking at the right things as being critical to decision making Um, that was was something that I sort of learned talking to sport coaches that really resonated and helped me think a lot
0: lot more about the classroom. That's fascinating the idea of the the quiet eye and the idea of visual perception you know I can remember um, studying Paul Scholes and where he looked yeah at a game was so fascinating compared to where Kind of an amateur looks at a game and how they see, but I suppose it's that quiet and eye in action. I suppose comparing that to a, 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 a master teacher, you know, they'll be able to look around the room and just identify things because their working memory isn't overloaded.
1: And you so, can argue that, that, you know, expertise is knowing what to look for <laughs> in a variety of settings. I think, you know, Paul's Calls is a great example. Um, and, you know, athletes talk all the time about when the game slows down for them and suddenly, you know, when you become an expert perception literally feels like it's going slower because you know where to look and you're not nervous. And that uh, correlates with making um, steadier, more reliable decisions and feeling calm on the ball or calm in the front of the classroom. And I I guess, uh, you know, maybe just to connect this back to the classroom, I think it's one of the reasons why video is so important and so underrated as a professional development tool. If, you know, just, Sitting together with a room full of colleagues and watching video and studying video and pausing it and talking about what we're perceiving and what we think is happening is developing our eyes and teaching ourselves to see the classroom more accurately, more acutely, so that we all sort of become Paul Scholes-ish in our execution at the front of the classrooms.
0: So that's a, that's a great goal for, for teachers to become more Paul Scholes in, the, in their classroom. What a wonderful... Hopefully without the slide tackles, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes they were necessary. Um, so we digress a little bit. So I'd like to get back into that chapter one. So chapter one then offers five principles or guiding principles which you write that you hope will provide a helpful mental model of how learning works and increase our ability to perceive accurately in the classroom and to apply the techniques in the book in a way that gets the most out of our students and that first principle there is understanding human cognitive structure means building long-term memory and managing working memory can you expand on why this principle came first and why it is important please
1: I think it's so foundational. Maybe that's why it comes first. It's really, it's really two principles that are so interlinked interrelated and interlinked that I couldn't really separate them because they're really about just sort of how the fundamentals of human cognitive architecture, the idea is, I think that one long-term, that long-term memory is the power of long-term memory is underestimated for the most part, power of knowledge, the power of long-term memory um, that, Lots of times, Daniel Willingham writes, "What we perceive to be um, higher-order thinking, creativity, problem-solving is actually is actually just memory recall, which is something that I see in my perceptive field, or I hear, you know, I perceive in a text, reminds me of something that I know. I draw a connection to it, I, you know, uh, suddenly, and I then then I engage my working memory, my uh, my conscious thinking to explain the connection, and then suddenly I have an insight." And so just the importance of, of building and investing in knowledge and long-term memory, I think is hugely important, but also understanding working memory, which is, you know, working memory, I would, def- I think that a cognitive scientist would def- any thinking that you're conscious of doing. And of course, you know, working memory is our superpower uh, as a species. It's what separates us from every other species, you know, uh, you know. Penicillin and uh, and Hamlet and Song of Solomon and uh, the overlapping center back uh, all of those uh, great developments of uh, of the human species those come from the power of working memory. But working memory is also, it, you know, like any great superhero, it has um, it has an Achilles heel. Has two Achilles heels. Um, one is that it's really limited in scope and scale. And we can only keep one or two thoughts in working memory at any given time. It's easily overloaded. And when it's overloaded, we perceive less well and we start to forget things. And, uh, and, and so you, know, you can argue that it, it struggles with duration too. It's, it's, hard, it's hard to keep things in working memory. And so when we're teaching and we want, um, we always have to be managing loads on working memory so that students think deeply about it. They gain new information, we give them new information to think about, but then we let, we, re, we, let, we let them wrestle with it and engage with it and use it in some way and begin to store it in long-term memory so that they renew and refresh their capacity to take in new information. And if we just try and, you know, um, you know, spray students with a fire hose of information, uh, they won't be, at some point, there'll be a diminishing marginal return, right? They won't be able to process all of it. I think some people sort of overreact to this and say, oh, because you can't lecture straight at most students, you know, certainly novice students for an hour straight, we shouldn't lecture at all. And I would say that's actually not, you know, direct instruction is quite effective. Direct instruction, ideally for novices would be I teach you directly for five or six minutes. Now I let you wrestle with it and reflect on it and talk to someone about it and write about it and maybe solve a problem with it. And now we come back and we do a little bit more. And so um, uh, so I, I think that's you know maybe two other very small takeaways from understanding human cognitive architecture and the relationship between working memory and long-term memory. One is this idea of cognitive load theory, which is what I'm describing, which is just the ease with which working memory gets overloaded and the fact that I always have to be attentive to it. And one is the guide and another is the guidance fading effect, uh, which is the idea that novices and experts learn differently. So when people talk about the best way to teach, well, the best way to teach depends on who you're teaching. Um, and uh, novices learn better generally from direct instruction and, you know, exploratory work better with experts Um if you drop a novice into a really rich and fascinating problem, they're unlikely to perceive and understand and learn from that situation like an expert would. And so lots of times, classes and they remember these profound things that they did in their university days, which, uh, as experts in the field more profound to them. And it doesn't necessarily always translate that giving those same activities to your, your you know, year seven students who are novices at the same, at the, uh, at, in the topic will yield the same sort of insights.
0: It certainly goes back to what you said earlier about expertise, almost being what you look at or okay. knowing where to look at so that perception. The amazing- yeah. And can I say there's,
1: there's actually, oh, there's a lot of great research on that, which is, you know, Uh, When you present them, I think the the key study on this is about physics problems, but an expert looks at physics problems and sees key principles at work. And a novice sort of is is paying attention to relatively trivial ideas. They mistake a rate of change problem for an acceleration problem. They don't see the difference. They're both about motion to them. And so um, they're they're just less likely to perceive and therefore learn from the salient details in an experiential uh,
0: context. Certainly, and I, th- I can remember reading a, a study in a book where you had uh, a castle with a number of entrances compared to a surgeon trying to uh, come up to like shrink a t- tumor. Both of them needed kind of um, attacking from all angles, whereas experts understood that I could see the, pro- the kind of problems, but novices only saw the surface structures and that oh, I need to do this and couldn't think deeply. So it kind of alludes to that. I also like what you said about comparing working memory to our superpower. I love that you, that you include Hamilton in that, in, that, in that as well. But of course, it's definitely separate as well. But like every superhero, it has Achilles heels, like we've mentioned there. So thank you for that. But I suppose it comes, it moves on wonderfully to principle two, because principle two outlines that habits accelerate learning. Yeah. Could I ask you what habits you mean and how they help accelerate learning? Yeah, I, I think this is
1: fascinating because I think one of the sort of ways that Teach Like a Champion Gen- I mean, has changed since the first version is my recognition of the, some, I'd say, a wider range of types of habits. And I would just say a habit is um, a procedure plus a routine, right? It's a way of doing a familiar activity and then doing it that way frequently enough that you can do it close to automatically. And what we're do- likely means without any load on your working memory, i.e. is free to think about the content as opposed to the procedure and the activity. So, you know, this applies to to very mundane things, procedural things, but also to, um, to intellectual activity. So maybe I'll just give you two examples of habits and how I think they would make a difference. And one might be, you know, a habit might be having a consistent way that we write in the classroom. I, uh, every time we're reading a novel together and every time we pause in the novel and I want you to reflect on it, I say in your writers, in your reading response journal, uh, one minute to reflect how this Joan is changing in the chapter go. Right. And if that's a habit and you've done it 87 times, hopefully it's a three second delay between when I say go and when every pencil in the classroom is moving. And that not only saves time, but it conserves working memory, which is whatever thought was in my mind when I'm reading the novel goes immediately under the page. Whereas I don't have a habit for that. And I say, great. Um, pause there. Let's take, let's take one minute to reflect on how Jonas is changing in the, in the chapter. Um, everyone take out something to write on and jot down your notes. Go put now cue now pushing back of chairs, students pulling things out of desks, one student crawling on the floor because his pencils falling on the floor. Excuse me. Is crayon okay? No, pencil only, please. How about pen? Can we write in pen? If that's all you have, fine. Wait, I, I don't have a piece of paper. Can I borrow a piece of paper? Uh, yes. Uh, David, would you give Joseph, Joseph a piece of paper? Thank you. Okay. Now, please write about the chapter. Go. So, A, we've wasted a ton of time. But more importantly, whatever thoughts students had and their working memories about that chapter um, have now dissipated into the, uh, in in favor of like the drama of can I find a piece of paper, and so that to me is a is a very mundane example of how um, having a habit for how we write in the classroom um, conserves working memory to think about the novel instead of thinking about distractions. I think a second example would be something you know like more intellectual things that we do, like a discussion. if we want to have discussions regularly, I should have habits of discussion in fact, this is something that, you know uh, habits of discussion is the name of one of the techniques in the book. And one of the things that, you know, lots of times what we call a discussion in the classroom, I don't actually think is a discussion, that just because people are talking a lot does not mean mean it's a discussion. And in fact, most quote discussions to me are a series of students uh, making comments aloud in sequence in a class. But most of those comments are fairly disconnected from each other. And then a really good discussion, people say things like, oh, I agree with what Darren was saying about about the anxiety that the protagonist is feeling. And I saw another example of that here. And then the next person says, yeah, I hear what Doug is saying about the anxiety, but I interpreted that slightly different. And here's my evidence for saying that. And so they are both slightly rephrasing and acknowledging the person who went before them. So we know how they're, so we know that they listened and they validate the person who went before and said that their idea and say that their ideas are important, but they and contextualize their own ideas compared to them. And so now we're really clearly not just making comments past each other, but working together to unlock some idea in concert together. And that to me is a discussion and it's, it's based on a series of habits. That I'm just, <laughs> habits that start with like, okay, we're going to look at each other to tell each other that we Habit of rephrasing what you say and, and referring back to it. And then using phrases that contextualize my idea compared to yours, so I make the the connection a little bit more explicit and make that that I am trying to connect those ideas more explicit. And then suddenly, if if we can make a habit out of that, suddenly discussions are more powerful intellectually and more inclusive and reaffirming to students psychologically because they're constantly telling each other how important they think their ideas are by referring back to them and so that to me like that is a ha- habit that is not simple to install in the classroom but if I can do it and I can do it frequently enough that students begin to take on those behaviors without really thinking about them and leaving their working memory free to, to think about the discussion then suddenly the things that we do frequently happen more powerfully more compellingly because of the because of the habit and so that's you know that to me or you know that's the book with the the writing and the sort of getting out of papers is a more mundane example. Habits of discussion is maybe a more sophisticated example of the way that habits would accelerate
0: learning in the classroom. Certainly, a very good, a very good example. And um, I think once they've habituated how to li- kind of listen to each other and build on each other's learning, then their attention, their focus is on actually listening rather than pretending to listen because you can look, but. Listen as well. So, thank you for that. And also, yeah, I think I
1: think that's really important to What you just said about listening—just to start to jump in first—which is, you know, a discussion. A discussion is partly based on what people say, but it's based as much on what on how people listen and how well they listen and whether we socialize them to listen. And listening is a habit that we can we can attend to as teachers, or we can ignore at our peril as as teachers. And I actually think, you know if all you have is people talking to each other and no one listening, you have the American political process and believe me, uh, you don't want that.
0: <laughs> no, certainly. One one thing that, I, that I've taken away from when I first read the book, I first read 2.0, is that I was quite keen to then implement a do now. And, and what I, I took away from that was about it being in the same place at the same, yeah. same time so that the students then can think about what I was wanting them to, to wrestle with, what I was wanting them to and um, put down on paper and I, that sort of habituation is that what you mean by accelerated learning is that another yeah I think
1: it's, an, it's maybe it's a, I should, probably should have started with that example it's a better one I should <laughs> uh, you know like yes yeah, so do now is a great example of a habit which is I walk into the classroom and I know that I know psychologically there's going to be a task for me to start to work on, on my own every day and it's always in the same place and I always know where to find it so I don't have to ask and so I have not only do I start learning right away, but I have this sort of calming, predictable, steady routine that grounds me. And um, you know, I think I think that this the comfort of predictability is a uh, and routine is a really nice thing psychologically. Uh, it's almost like a ritual that prepares me mentally, uh, like in, in, in kind of a meditative way for the hour that's ahead of me, right? I come in, I sit down, and I'm going to get to reflect on a relatively interesting question for three to five minutes and and then, I'm, you know, then we're going to discuss it briefly and then we're going to go on with the main lesson and that, uh, that predictability of that ritual actually kind of gets me into a learning space really productively. So, so I, I think it accelerates learning on, you know, on a, on a bunch of different levels, uh, from, you know, from psychological to the, you know, to the more practical.
0: Certainly, and I think we'll come back to that idea a little bit later on. And that kind of gives us it um, helps us move smoothly on to this idea of, of attention. Because once you've habituated yeah. things, going back to the discussion, once you've habituated the, how to listen and interact with each other, you can then really focus on the content. And it leads us on to principle three, which is one of my favourites. I really like how this is worded. Is that what students attend to is what they will learn about. Yeah. Can I ask you what you mean by this and how important it is for us to manage students' attention in the classroom?
1: I think it's so important that it's easy to overlook, ironically, which is it's it's a very simple idea, which is, you know, the the full psych, you know, the full cognitive psychological name for this is is selective attention, which is I choose what to pay attention to and what to ignore. And when I pay attention to things, I learn about them, they enter my consciousness, I think about them. And if I, you know, and there are are degrees of attention. And in fact, you know, to go back to human cognitive architecture, things enter, long-term memory is profoundly important. Things enter long-term memory through working memory. In other words, I think about them, then I forget about them, and I think about them again, and I forget about them, and I think about them again. And the sort of processes of thinking about it several times over the course of several interactions begins to encode them into long-term memory so that I can, so that I know them and can access them what determines the rate. But of course, like everyone isn't everyone isn't encoding at the same rate into long-term memory. Some students are paying attention, some students are half paying attention. You know, and so uh, the the rate at which that learning happens is governed by, modified by, controlled by the degree of attention, the degree of focus. And so I, I just think that we're doing young people a Gift when we're attentive to attention and we think about what are they they paying attention to right now? Uh, What are they focused on? What should they be focused on? Um, How do I help them to build strong attentional skills? I think that this is really profoundly important now because every time students leave our classrooms, they enter a laboratory that is designed to fracture and, uh, and erode their attention. You know every time they're on their their smartphones their average duration of thinking about any task is less than a minute they're constantly interrupted by their phones telling them hey guess what david's doing guess what carly's doing guess what the kardashians are doing guess what they guess what, like they they don't um marianne wolf the cognitive scientist describes it as a, as a constant state of half attention right and so that um neuroplasticity, the neuroplasticity, of the brain, our brains adapt to the way that we use them. And so the more more time students spend with their attention fractured, the more fractured their capacity for attention becomes. So I think that one of the greatest gifts we can do students in the classroom is to be attentive to what they're paying attention to and help them build good attentional skills and help them improve and extend their capacity to focus on the topic for sustained with depth and att- with depth
0: and fo- and focus for a sustained period of time so all oh, that is the greatest gift we can give them so to build on that then can I, can I ask you could you give us any suggestions as to how teachers could best do that and in- mm-hmm.
1: yeah i'll give you one suggestion I, I one of my you know sometimes people ask me what my favorite chapter is um not supposed to have favorite chapters, but really the writing chapter is my favorite chapter because right. I just I uh, I love writing and I just believe profoundly it's in, in its importance in learning, and I think that writing mm. um, writing can do two things in the classroom. Writing is a great opportunity to explain what I know, and I think we use it that way a lot in the classroom. But writing is also a tool for discovering what I know like a a reflective iterative tool where where actually um, I call this formative writing. And I would define formative writing as writing that you, when you start writing, you don't necessarily know what you think or you don't have to know what you think before you start writing. And I think that's a profound and beautiful thing that like I am asked a question, I don't know the answer to it. And I reflect on it in writing and the writing creates rigor and structure because I have to choose exact words and exact syntax and and, and cause vague inchoate notions that are in my head that I half understand myself. I have to lock them down into precise conception or not. I just think that's a profoundly rigorous task, but it's a very, very challenging task. And when we ask students to write, many of them struggle to write where they can sustain writing for, you know, for a few minutes. At most, or you know, sometimes not even a minute at most. And so, one of the techniques in the book that I think is like this very mundane t- technique on which all sorts of sublime things rest is silent solo, which is the idea of intentionally building up students' stamina for reflective writing. So maybe the first time I do it, I might be like, "Let's write for thirty sec thirty seconds. Reflect on how Jonas is changing the chapter. The only you know." Uh, Anything you write is fine. I won't, just want you to reflect. Uh, no ideas are wrong. The only rule is I want to challenge you to write straight through for 30 seconds. Go. Thank you. Darren, I see your pencil moving. Nice work. I can't wait to read what you write. Uh, you know, so, so, so I'm building up this sort of habit of writing. We do that for 30 seconds. Maybe the next day we do it for 45 seconds or a minute. And my goal might be over six or eight weeks for, to be able to say to students, as many great teachers that I've seen in the classroom, at the end of a chapter or at the end of a data set. That was fascinating. There's a lot to think about there. I'm going to give you five minutes. I'm going to give you eight minutes. I'm going to give you 10 minutes to write in response to what you just experienced. And students will do it. And they will sustain deep, focus, deep reflective, almost meditative focus through their pencil for five, eight, 10 minutes at a stretch. And I would just say that that is the superpower. And in a knowledge economy, the ability to sustain your focus in that way is a superpower. And in a world where the rest of the world is having their attention fractured into tiny 15 second doses, if my students can sustain that kind of meditative deep focus for 10 minutes at a time, the world is theirs.
0: Like you, Uplearn is on a mission to help every student realise and fulfil their potential. Uplearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that helps teachers improve educational outcomes among students whilst reducing their own workloads. Developed by an experienced team of educators, Uplearn courses contain high-quality videos, quizzes and exam preparation material. Teachers direct students to certain sections of Uplearn's homework, facilitating flip learning, consolidation of classroom material, and independent learning. Uplearn leverages cognitive science and evidence-informed teaching techniques, meaning that teachers can rest assured that students are effectively engaged and supported, both inside and outside of school. Over 150 schools have seen improvements with Uplearn's cutting-edge technology, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School, and trusts such as Art Schools and the Harris Federation. 97% of students who complete an Uplearn course achieve A star or A, with many starting from D's and U's. What could yours achieve? Find out by booking a demo today at Uplearn.co.uk and be sure to quote Becoming Educated for a 10% discount. That's Uplearn.co.uk U-P-L-E-A-R-N.co.uk I absolutely agree with that. I love that. And I came across the, the formative writing idea in one of your blogs, and, and I've taken that one myself. And I love that idea. I'm currently reading, reading Reconsidered. And in that, there's a, a clip of where a, a teacher sends them off for 18 minutes, but you, yeah. make, you make a note in the, in the text how that's been built over time. And I suppose that idea of what students are tending to, if they're grappling with the content of the lesson for five, eight, 18 minutes, then that's going to really help them deepen their learning and encode that into long-term memory.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, and it's challenging. It's challenging to do, but I really think it's worth I think it's worth, <laughs> worth the struggle. You no,
0: know, it certainly is. And I love how you got that idea of, of that split attention. As Marianne Wolf says, we're in a constant state of, of half attention. I had a, a discussion just this morning with a student whose screen time was was quite staggering. And trying to t- t- tell him about that was, you know, like talking into, a, talking into a very blank space as they're just not listening to you.
1: I believe in having the same the same conversation with uh circle students regularly and those students happen to be my children. <laughs> 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 uh, but I just say like I, you know like uh, as a parent um, it's the thing I think about most for my my children is uh their their reading and their writing and having time when they're away from screens and their and their ability to sustain their attention. Um, I just think that that's 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 the thing I talk to the most about.
0: You know, Shane, I like that what you said there that in, in this knowledge economy, that sustained focus it is such a superpower, and it is. So thanks for thanks for that. And I wanna I'm gonna want to double back a little bit later on because I'm really fascinated by what you write in terms of, of reading and writing in the classroom and the battle we're having with, with the smartphone. And <laughs> before we do that, I'd like to then move on to principle four. Because principle four says that motivation is social can you speak to this idea and can you share how teachers can then best prevent counterproductive behaviors in the classroom
1: yeah i think that anytime like we're humans are profoundly profoundly social creatures you know we evolve individually in part but on the savannah and through uh eons of prehistory Human alone by themselves was mostly dinner for some for some other species. Right, that uh, we survived because we were the species that was able to form successful collaborative groups. You know, and to be cast out of a group evolutionarily was death. Right, it was sure it was sure death. And so we and and you know over over thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And so we are deeply attuned to not only maintaining group membership, but affirming our status and our, uh, our inclusion and, and full membership in the group. Um, and so as soon as we connect with any group, as soon as we walk in any group, we start to, to try to read what, what are the norms, what are the unspoken rules of inclusion and engagement in this group that caused me to be a part of it. And every context we are in has different norms. They're for the most part unspoken and they are for the most part, um, well, they are often accidental. And so when I say that motivation is social, what I mean is that the, the greatest single influence on what people will do, and I don't just mean students, I mean adults as well, The greatest single mot- the greatest single influence on what they do or what they want to do is what they perceive to be normal, the unwritten rules expressed by people around them. And so if I want want students to, you know, want to engage in discussions, right, and want to discuss literature in a substantive way, I should know that I can tell them, you're gonna love this conference, it's gonna be so fascinating, I value your ideas but what's more important than that is what their peers will say to them verbally and non-verbally when they discuss, when they discuss an idea in class, do their classmates look bored? Are their classmates slouched from their chairs looking away uh, as if like, you know, like um, I don't give a damn what you're saying to go back to the, seat, they said they have habits of discussion. When I say, Oh, this is like what Darren was talking about before that is motivating because I am, because I am, I am social. I, I, am so but the norm in this room is that I listen and I care about what people around me are saying. And that is a huge motivator for you to continue participating in discussion. Whereas if you say something about the book and there's silence after you speak and no one even acknowledges it and you wonder, was that strange? Was that weird? Did people think that? The, should I have not said that? Well, I, you know, well, people... That is the lot better. Those are the thoughts that, that preview you're having made your last comment for the year, (laughs) your last willing comment for the year in the classroom. And so the fifth principle, which is about relationship building, which is like, of course, teacher relationships with students matter, and they matter profoundly. But when students say, Oh, I love Mr. Leslie's class, what they mean in many ways, is I love the way that I feel in Mr. Leslie's class. And in fact, that is determined as much or more by the social norms that they get from the peers. The fact that their their, their peers show that they care about their ideas and value them, and they feel included uh, and inspired in the classroom. And so what you say to David after he speaks, oh, David, I love your idea. Like That's important but not nearly as important as how you socialize David's classmates to respond to David, because they are the ones who shape his perception. They, they set the norms. They des- describe, they drive his, um, his sense of what's normal, his, motiv- his motivation, right? And so shaping the norms of the cl- of, of peer-to-peer behavior in the class, that is the
0: key to shaping student motivation. John, how you... Would you suggest that teachers can do that? Because in in the a lot of the Keystone videos, what you what you mentioned about it, a lot of the students are asked to track their mm-hmm. that. Yes, you encourage teachers to teach so that you can then build that going back a little bit in there, and kind if of you build that habit, so that they then first begin looking at who's talking. So I'm looking at you as you're talking, but then once that's habit, I'm then listening to you.
1: Yes. And so interestingly, like this, this idea of um, tracking students, uh, there are a lot of things, you know, there are a lot of people who find that idea really offensive. Um, And they talk about how it's controlling bodies and things like that. And I just fundamentally disagree. I did try to rename it in this version of the book. I called it habits of attention to remind teachers that there are really two purposes for it. When I teach students to look at each other, when they're talking to each other, for the listener, I'm helping them focus their attention on what the person who is talking to them is saying, and that, you know, that causes them to attend to it more and and pay better attention to it. If I'm looking out the window while you're talking to me, part of my attention is distract part of my attention is distracted by what's out the window, and I won't listen as well. So if I can teach you this habit, you will learn more from what people around you say. But then the second thing is, you know, and and then second, I will send these non these prosocial nonverbal signals to the speaker what you're saying right now matters to me i care about it uh it's important and that uh that is critical to motivation um and you know just many many students are asked to participate in class where the students around them their body language their non nonver- their you know their their nonverbal signals say i don't, I don't give a damn what you're saying right now <laughs> uh and and no no rational person persists in saying things in an environment where the, where the people around them are saying i don't care even if the teacher is saying oh it's so fascinating to me what you say I love that. Thank you so much for your comment. If the rest of the if, if the students mates are saying, like, you fool, <laughs> that behavior, that behavior is on the brink of extinction. So I, I do think that those like sort of looking behaviors, habits of attention, I think are important. So is the validation of like habits of, of discussion, which is like people referring to one another's ideas. It's another way of showing that uh, of showing that they matter. But I think it's another reason why habits are so important and systems and routines are so important, which is to go back to this idea of, uh, of silent solo and building stamina for writing. I think most teachers who are listening to this probably are thinking of like one student in their class who when they say, okay, everyone, we're going to write, like most of the kids will do it and there's one kid who's just not ever going to not ever gonna write. And I think the or their perception is like, this is the hardest kid to get to write. And I think a lot of what will ultimately most motivate a resistant or reluctant student to engage in a positive, productive routine is seeing everyone around them do it. And the more visible I can make the routine and more normal and more, um, more of a norm among the peers, the more likely they to say, hmm, okay, that's what people do here. And so I'm going to, I'm going to do it too, or at least make an effort to do it or show that I can make an effort to do it. And so I just think it's another reason why those, those well, um, well-drilled,
0: well-routinized procedures are so critical to any, any great classroom. No, certainly, once that procedures are really embedded and somebody new comes into the classroom, you can imagine them looking around and going, oh, this is what it's like. I've actually experienced that recently with a student coming into my classroom and then seeing them, watching other students, and going, oh, that's how we do it here. And then they are just fit right in.
1: That, Darren, that's such a perfect example because in, in the best teacher's classrooms, um, and I do mean to imply that I think there's, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm assuming you're one of the best uh, that you almost don't have to say anything to students. You know, they figure out 90% of what, of, of what the culture is just by watching and seeing how clearly, um, how clear they are and what a norm it is among other students that in a great classroom a new student can walk in and boom, they're up to speed and they're part of the culture within, you know, within minutes because it's all so legible to them. Um, in ways that they may not even realize that they're right. Like so so much of what makes these sort of uh, products of our evolutionary development, you know, our hypersensitivity to to social norms and peer, like we're not even aware of the way those things affect us so often. So it's, just, you know, it um, sometimes subverts our conscious awareness that we we just respond
0: without even realizing that we're responding. Certainly. Thank you so much for that. And that brings us on to our final principle, which I think is an absolute cracker of a principle. And that is that teaching well is Mm -hmm. relationship building. Can you share with us why you think this?
1: Yes. Um, look, I really, really, really believe in relationships. They are important, but there's so, I think there's a lot of misinformation or well-intentioned information about relationships that can be counterproductive in the classroom. And one of the things that's an example of that, that I hear something along the lines of kids don't care what you say until they know that you care. In other words, the presumption behind this is that until I have established a relationship, I cannot presume to teach someone. And I think that that is well-intentioned, but fundamentally wrong. Mm -hmm. One, because um, I don't know how you, because one of the primary ways that you build a relationship with someone is to teach them and to teach them effectively. And to have them see that you care enough about them to explain something to them, to check in on their progress, to to make sure that you explain it again to them so they can understand that, to look at their work and say, mm, you're really making, you're doing well here, you could describe this differently, right? That sort of task-oriented interaction around helping you achieve a goal, that is one of the primary ways that we build relationships. And I know I see a lot of teachers who try to build relationships before they start teaching. And so students come in and they, you know, and a lot of the things that they do are actually, f- um, they don't have enough context yet with students. Like you can ask them about what they like to do in the summer and what they, what movies they saw and things like that. But like, first of all, that's not, you're not their friend. You're a teacher. You have a a very specific relationship that you're trying to build with them. You're trying to build a relationship around their, around their own betterment and improvement and learning. But number two, like that is, that is actually not the way that we build most of the relationships that we build in our lives. We build relationships with people by, by shared endeavor. And, you know, I I was mentioning before how much writing my book about coaching influenced me on this. And, And this is one of, this is one of the places where, this is one of the things that was clearest to coaches I showed, uh, um, I was doing a workshop for coaches in our professional soccer league, football league here in in the U.S., and I showed a video of a math teacher. And the math teacher is walking around the room, stopping by every student's desk, giving them tiny bits of feedback about solving these math problems that they're working on. And just like, um, you know, he's at each desk for like five seconds, but it's like, great job, much better. You're really making progress here. Don't forget to do this. Don't forget to do that. And there's, you know, and just this like, he's investing in making them better and I stopped the video and the first coach said um this is so profound like he said he this is a guy who's coaching everybody and I realized that we sometimes don't coach everybody and so so many of our players feel like they're not part of the program because we don't talk to them every day about their progress and let them know that I am invested in making you better and that's what they want is to is to be successful and so his takeaway was like oh Connecting through teaching and through coaching, that is a way to build relationships. And then the second coach was like, yeah, and you know, like people want to, like people, the way that you prove to someone you care about them is like, I take time to tell you how to get better because I believe that you can, because you will be successful and I'm observant and attentive to you. I see you in the crowd and I walk around and, and like, I don't see you as One anonymous face in the 30, I'm talking to you about your progress on this because I because I care about you as an individual. And that is the way that you build abiding connections. They were just really clear on that for athletes. And I don't think it's much different for students. And so I just think that the the primary tool that we have available to us to build, yes, relationships are important. Relationships developed by our teaching successfully with humanity and grace and attentive students. But when you teach when you teach in a way that says, says student, to students, I believe that you will make progress. I'm very attentive to your progress. I see how you're doing. I care, I support you, I invest in you. That is how we build relationships. And so if you believe that you have to have a relationship before you do those things, it's almost like you'll never quite get there because you'll be trying to do all these pre- preamble, preliminary things to the event that actually builds the relationship, which is the teaching. Um, and so I think that that's just uh, it's commonly misunderstood. Yes, I think relationships are profoundly important, and I think teaching teaching people well with care, attentiveness, and grace is the way that we build most of the relationships with students in our lives.
0: Well, certainly, and you can you can see the relationships in the in the videos of the, with the book, and I think possibly that as well. When you're going around and you you give a student feedback, and you go back five minutes later and tell them how much they've progressed, you can see yeah. it on their face, They're like you know, you really care about their progress and that care about the progress. And I think back to my own, one of my favourite teachers in school, school, he's, he's no longer with us, Mr. Jones. He demanded so much from me, but he did it in such a way that I just, I knew that he cared about how I was going to go on and so on. And when I left school, he kept in touch. And I think that's the, the power of relationships. And even now I call him Mr. Jones, I don't call him by any other name. I think that shows the relationship there of that. Yeah. Teacher student relationship and which sometimes does get confused a little bit.
1: That's so much in that story that you told. It's really first of all, it's a beautiful story. You know, the fact that you keep in touch is so important. You kept in touch because of the teaching relationship that he that he built, right? And but even if you didn't keep in touch, like it's wonderful that you did, but the fact that you would want to keep in touch was established by the teaching. And so in some cases you won't keep in touch with every teacher, right? But, but if you have that sort of the keeping in touch was a reflection of the relationship that had already been built. That wasn't, <laughs> wasn't really re- where the relationship was built. It's just a desire to, um, to it, it's a reflection of how much you valued what he did through his teaching. I also think like, I just what you, what you love what you said about your desire to continue calling him Mr. Jones. I always felt that with my teachers that I didn't want to call. Like, sometimes they'd be like, call me Dave, man. And I'd be like, I don't, I want to call you Dave. <laughs> I want to call you by your last name because I want, I want to like, um, I like the formality of, call, of, of. Showing that I appreciate you. And I think that there's expertise and that, and that you're not, we have a great relationship, but you are not my, you're not my friend. It's different. I value it more because, <laughs> because you're different from my friends and you, the relationship that we have serves a different purpose in my life. And I just think it, maybe that just reminds me that like, we want to build relationships we are looking to build a very specific type of relationship it's a teacher student relationship uh, it's um, it's about someone who has expertise in something sharing knowledge and expertise with someone who is more of a novice um and showing that they believe in them and that they have the capacity to develop that expertise um it is <laughs> yeah, it, it is hierarchical. It doesn't have to be an abuse of power, but it is that uh, you know that notion that you wanted to call him Mr. Jones to continue this sort of gesture of respect and appreciation. I just think that I'm having trouble articulating what I think that tells you know <laughs> it'll be a day or two till I, till I, I have to like you know write it out to figure out what I think. But I think that that it, it tells us something about the nature of a relationship that mm-hmm. that we value in the classroom
0: it's as students. It certainly does, and I, and I think that's why I love that that last principle so much because of what it, what it speaks to and how it resonates. So I'd like to close the interview, the interview sections. What I do in my podcast, I have a quick fire round at the end. But before I get there, if I may, I'd like to take a short detour into reading. We've already mentioned a little bit because you're right that for many students, school is increasingly the only place that this activity of sustained reading is likely to happen. There are few other places safe from the reach of technological distraction. Can I ask you, why is reading so vital to you and why should we prioritize it in our classrooms?
1: Oh my gosh, how much time do you have? (laughs) Um, First of all, I think that, I think reading is the most rigorous both in terms of their precision and clarity and in terms of the level of thinking that they inspire in the recipient. And I think that stories are privileged cognitively. Daniel Wilkheim makes this point in Why Don't Students Like School? And they're, they're, they're privileged, again, just to go back to the sort of like evolutionary biology Human culture was something that we shared by telling stories to each other around the fire. You know, during the day, we talked about, like, hunting and the logistics of, like, how are we going to skin this thing? And, like, will that eat me? And during the day when we we sat around the fire, during, at night when we sat around the fire, that was when we communicated the cumulative culture that we had assembled. Our understanding of the world passed down from, uh, from one, across from one another and down from our forebears. And that is where like our understanding about our shared society and what it meant happened. You know, I just was, I was just listening to um, I can't remember who I was saying that, you know, like, all of the important characters in myth, right. They're, they're fictional, right. They come through stories because they're supposed to tell us who we are and what we're about. And so I just, I, it's not just that I think that reading is the most effective way to, transmit information of depth and rigor and that it's an exercise in sustaining attention and focus which is necessary to, to the most diligent forms of thinking but it's a deeply social act to read together and to share stories together and i just i i think that that's easily overlooked it's one of the ways that we if we read together in the classroom we build community not just intellectual community of having discussed book, but the the emotional experience of the store of ex- having experienced the story t- Together, um, binds people together in groups and makes them feel a profound sense of belonging and sells them on the power of reading and stories to enlighten
0: themselves for the rest of their lives. Right. What a wonderful way to close that interview. Thank you so much for, for answering that last question about reading. We've already mentioned how the distraction of social mobile phones, sorry, and their half attention and thank you for elaborating how rigorous reading is. Uh, I'd like to dive into my quick fire questions to close the podcast. Before I do, can I please ask you to um, point listeners into a direction of uh, perhaps social media accounts where they can follow you, uh, a website where they can read your blogs and of course, where they should go to to buy your books. (laughs)
1: Uh, brilliant. So, um, I'm on Twitter. It's, uh, Doug underscore Lamov at, at Twitter. Uh, and you can, I think I'm the only Lamov out there. So you can, L E M O F E. Uh, you can find me that way. Uh, I have a website. Uh, I have a, my blog is at teach backslash blog. Uh, I'm a little bit behind, but I, uh, I'm going to be posting again next week. I try and post a couple of things, you know, a couple of things a week, videos of teachers, new thoughts, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, where uh, you, can, you can buy the book and Teach Like a Champion 3.0 or The Coach's Guide to Teaching or Reading Reconsider. I think we've talked briefly about all those. Ideally, you'd buy them from a local bookshop in your community. Uh, but if you, if you can't, they're also on uh, Amazon.
0: And <laughs> <laughs> the big beast. I was There's a, a, literally less than a mile from my house there's the biggest amazon warehouse in scotland so <laughs> it looms large and it is in your area. local <laughs> it looms large in the area so if you're up for it dog, i'd like to move into my quick fire round three questions where i want just brief thoughts from you if that's okay yeah so the first one i want to ask you is what are you reading currently
1: I'm so glad you asked because I'm reading one of the best books I've read in memory. Uh, it's called the social leap. It's by William von Hippel. It is, um, it is an, it's an evolutionary history. It's a, a history of, uh, evolutionary biology, but it really focuses on the way that social interaction changed our changed and developed our brains, uh, and how profoundly social we are. A lot of the things that we've talked about on this on this podcast are in there. Uh, the cooperative eye hypothesis, for example, which is how important gaze is. Um, uh, you know, lots of. I just think it's a, it's it's a remarkable book. So um, I'm uh, tearing that one apart and really really enjoying it. It's been fantastic.
0: Right, thank you thank you for your insights in on that one. So my next question to you is: Is what is your current professional development focus?
1: What I'm working on right now is, uh, I mean, a lot of different things, but my team and I are, are writing an English curriculum. I think one of the things that I've, one of the areas where I've just come to feel very strongly over the last year or two is the importance of intentional, rigorous daily curriculum that supports teachers, you know, that like, especially in English, the amount of time it takes to, to prepare a knowledge-rich lesson to really unlock a book is immense. And for teachers who are already teaching four or five preparations, it's just, it's a different skill and it's a, and it's a lot to ask. And if we really want to be knowledge-driven, which I think the cognitive science supports, and we really want to be writing intensive, um, we need really great curriculum. And so, you know, I, I guess what I'm, I don't think Great teaching is not possible without great curriculum and great curriculum is not possible without great teaching. And so I, I see the sort of teach like a champion work and the curriculum development work that we're now doing as synergistic. So we're developing this curriculum. It's a right now it's for the middle grades, which is uh, five to eight for us, which would be six to nine for you, but we're gonna expand upwards into, into high school. Um, it's modular, so it's built around Books and teachers can choose five or six books per grade per year level per grade level, and there's a daily lesson, you know, a bunch of units and date with daily lessons that they can use and adapt uh, from there. But they're they're full of like embedded nonfiction passages to infuse the books with uh, with background knowledge. And I just enjoy it, and it's fascinating, and I think it's going to really make a huge difference. So that's kind of uh, where a lot of my mind is these
0: days. I certainly, I love that note on great teaching. It's not possible without a great curriculum and, and vice versa. I, I love that. And I love that recognition that it takes so long to really design a, a knowledge-rich, meaningful lesson. So thank you for that. And my final question from the quick for round is, can I ask you, what do you love most about being a teacher and teaching?
1: Okay. <laughs> um, well, it's interesting because because what what I'm gonna, I think this is going to be a strange answer because most of the teaching that I do now, you know, I'm not in the classroom anymore. Um, it's been a while since I've been in the classroom daily. Most of the teaching that I do now is sort of training, te- teaching of, of other adults. Uh, and in most of the settings when I do that, I do it with a colleague, and um, I love that. I love, I love the team. I've always been a team sport kind of person, and I love making. Teaching a team sport, I find it so fun and fascinating to sort of present an hour and a half or a day long session with another colleague, and to watch what they do with an idea, and to riff off of what they do, with think, "Ah, oh, so brilliant what they just did." And I, I, the reason I mention that is because I think that um, one of the things we don't talk about much is how lonely te- how lonely a job teaching can be. You know, you walk into your classroom, and yes, the kids are there, but you don't really have any often don't have any sustained interaction with adults about what you do and the decisions that you make. And again, I think people are profoundly social, even an introvert like me, and that if, if we can find ways to make the teaching profession more social and more of a team sport, it makes it more enjoyable. And we may not be able to team teach, but inviting colleagues to see you teach or watching video together, or even just practicing together and getting together and saying, I'm working on my cold call. I've scripted some questions. I think I'm going to ask next lesson. Can I read them to you? Can you pretend that you're my class and let you know? Let's practice together. Um, in addition to that, getting you better at the skill of teaching, I think it make it puts you in a team environment. If you do that with three or four colleagues, like you're probably laughing and giggling about, you know, uh, what your students might say or how silly your question came out or you know, some funny thing, that, and that um, that draws us into a circle of connection among our, among ourselves as teachers and i just think we have to be really attentive to that uh to make sure that we keep
0: and keep and and emphasize the joy of
1: the craft of teaching
0: so i love what i wait mean, for joy and emphasize the, the joy in the craft of teaching i love that analogy to teaching being a, a team sport as someone who's spent his entire life in a team and wanting to be in more teams <laughs> it really, really resonates with me so that brings us to the end of the interview Doug I'd like to thank you so so much for giving up your time on a Friday to, to chat with me for the Becoming Educated podcast
1: That's really been my pleasure thanks
0: for having me on Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Educated As ever I would be delighted to hear your thoughts and you can contact me via Twitter at Leslie or via email So that you don't miss out, I urge you to subscribe to the podcast. And while I have your attention, why not submit a review of the podcast wherever you get yours from so that many, many others can access Becoming Educated. I'll be back next week with another episode of Becoming Educated, and I do hope to see you there.